It's wonderful to see so many of you out and about this morning and here to worship. You're not just out and about, you're here to worship the Lord. And I am so grateful that we have so many voices to sing and encourage one another. Speaking of singing, there is a song in our songbook entitled Whispering Hope. It is song number 500. And with all due respect, while this morning's lesson is all about the biblical hope that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, this morning's sermon is not at all about whispering hope. I just want you to know it's not about whispering hope. The message this morning is about the deafening, thundering, feel it in your chest, hold it in your heart, earth-shaking, hell-shattering, heaven-sent, certified and guaranteed by God Almighty hope that we as Christians have. There's nothing whispering about it. Not that I have a problem with the song, we can still sing it. But brethren, we have a rock-solid, earth-shaking, hell-shattering hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is an incredible hope. A lot of times you'll hear politicians or pagan people and they, they will talk about hope. They haven't got a blessed clue what it means according to God's word. Haven't got a blessed clue. God wrote the book on hope. You know, the same thing is true of hope that is true of peace. Jesus spoke on peace in John 14, 27, but what we're going to see this morning is that the same thing is true of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Jesus said of peace. We could insert the word hope into that passage and it would be just as true. Jesus could just as easily have said, John 14, 27, hope I leave with you. My hope I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. That is the quality of the hope that we have, as well as the peace that we have. And, you know, we talk about this word hope. There's a lot of words that have gotten changed in our English language. There's a lot of words today that, that we take a totally different way than they used to take things. You know, web used to be something that you didn't want to walk into because there was a big fat spider in it, right? It's got a totally different meaning today when you talk about the web. Well. Hope has taken on a different meaning than the Bible gives it. My hope is not a, and I know you probably all heard this, but I'm going to elaborate on it anyway. My hope is not a hope so hope. It isn't. My hope is a no so hope. I know. It's not a hope so hope. I found a really good article on this idea. It reads as follows. This, this author really nailed this hard. We, we hear about hope all the time and we say, well, I hope this or I hope that, but, but there's no certainty, there's no surety. In the Bible, it is rock solid. There's no guesswork involved. This article reads, hope is not, I hope my team wins the Super Bowl, or I hope I get a raise, Biblical hope is not a hope-so hope like that. Biblical hope is a no-so hope. It isn't wishing for the best. 
It isn't waiting to see what happens and hoping that it all turns out well. Hope is not a feeling or an emotion. Hope is the knowledge of facts. Don't miss that. Hope is the knowledge of facts. If someone says to you, I hope you have a good day, there is absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that the day is going to go well, despite the fact that they said, I hope you have a good day. To have a biblical hope is to have a sure anchor of the soul, not hoping for rain because the forecast says there's a 60% chance and you hope you get your garden watered. That is not hope. We got to get this. I hope it rains because my garden needs water. I hope it rains because my well's getting down. I hope it rains because the weatherman said 60% chance and I That is not hope. That is wishful thinking. And it is utterly undependable and it has no power to bring anything to pass. Do you get that? Just as I say I hope it rains, it's got no power to make it happen. Human hope pales in comparison to biblical hope. A Christian's definition of hope is far superior to that of the world. Instead of wishing or hoping for something to happen, a Christian knows that their hope is solid and concrete and it is based on evidence because it is grounded in the Word of God. Amen. The Greek word itself, if you look this up, you find something similar to this. The Greek word in the Bible that's translated hope means a joyful, favorable, and fully confident expectation. You're going to hear that a lot in this lesson. A joyable, I'm sorry, a joyful, hopefully you don't hear joyable, a joyful, favorable, and fully confident expectation is what that Greek word means. As the writer of Hebrews wrote by divine inspiration in Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 19, the following, he says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, by the way, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Do we understand that God cannot lie? Not only does he not lie, he can't. Or he wouldn't be God. It is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I need something stronger to anchor my soul to than, well, I hope it rains. Well, I hope I get good news to doctors. That's wishful thinking. That's not hope as the Bible defines it. I need something strong. Don't you need something stronger than that in your life? The Bible gives us that, brethren. God has a promise for us who have, fled, who have fled to lay hold of the hope set before us. He has given us this strong anchor. You see, just like our eternal inheritance, Peter writes about our eternal inheritance, and he writes that it does not dim, it does not diminish, it does not deteriorate, whether through time or trouble or tribulation. We, we, have, this, we have this eternal inheritance that does not diminish through all of our troubles. In fact, this eternal inheritance grows more precious and priceless. Those of you that are getting older, like me, if you're staying young, that's fine. 
But those of you that are getting older and you're getting closer to going home and being with the Lord, this inheritance gets more precious and priceless and powerful as the years go by. As we get closer and closer to going home to being with the Lord, our inheritance means more to us every day because we're getting closer to it. We have a song about that in our song books as well, sweeter as the years go by, but this word hope in the Bible, a joyful, favorable, and fully confident expectation that word is a word that the Apostle Paul uses a dozen times, a dozen times in his epistle to the Romans, including three times near the end of the book. And we're going to focus in on some of those today. And I, I think a little history lesson, uh, a little bit of the dynamic of what's going on would help us to understand how important that word hope was when he put it in his letter to the Church of Christ in first century Rome. A little background if I may, why that joyful, favorable, fully confident expectation, that hope, that word he includes a dozen times in Romans is so important. Here's your history lesson. Roughly six years before the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, Claudius Caesar had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. We see that in Acts 18 and verse 2. There was a lot of confusion. Christians were being kicked out of Rome, run off by decree of Caesar. Imagine having to leave your home, being run out of town by the governor of Oklahoma. You've got to flee the state. What you can take with you and get. It was not a real hopeful time for those people. We also know that having occurred six years or so before the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans about hope, we also know that within a few years, Within a decade, certainly, after his writing to the Christians in Rome, that the Apostle Paul himself was going to be imprisoned there. He was going to be imprisoned in Rome. And while he's there over the next few years imprisoned in Rome, or within the next few years imprisoned in Rome, Paul's going to do something. Paul's going to write some letters what we call the prison epistles. He's going to write those while he is in jail in Rome. He's going to write to the Ephesians. He's going to write to the Philippians. He's going to write to the Colossians. You know what Paul's going to write about while he's in jail? How joyful life is. He's going to write about that hope. Even a few years later down the road after he writes Roman and he's imprisoned in Rome, he is going to write about this, this joyful, this confident, fully assured expectation. He's going to write about that in places like Philippians 1, 19 through 21, where he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope. Does that sound like he had no idea? That sounds like he's kind of like, well, I really hope this happens. No! He said, I have a full expectation. That's the word he uses. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's singing that same song of hope while he's in jail. Years later, writing from Rome instead of writing to Rome, which is going to be the focus of our lesson. But, but no matter where you go, which side of his Roman epistle, you see Paul just exuding this, this confident expectation. 
Why? How, Paul, how can you have that after all it's happened? Because he knew that God always keeps his promises, period. Always, no matter what. If God said it, Paul knew he could count on it. That's why he had this expectation. It was confident assurance. Brother J.W. Shepherd wrote in his introduction to David Lipscomb's Gospel Advocate Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, he wrote something else. He, he wrote this. He says, the second epistle to Timothy was written from Rome during Paul's second imprisonment there. Paul being under a strong feeling for feeling that the time for his execution was near. And we are not left to wonder about the feelings with which he awaited this event, for he expresses them in a sublime strain of triumphant hope. What, what Brother Shepherd is saying is, look, even later on, when Paul is in his second Roman imprisonment, and he writes the book of 2 Timothy, what's he talking about? Is his hope faded? Not at all. You know how he closed that letter? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he says this, For I am already being offered, and the time of my departure has come. He knew he was going to die for the Lord. So what's he saying? Oh, no. Where did it all go? Why me, Lord? No. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is. There, folks, there's no doubt about it. Paul's got absolutely no doubt. He has a full, certain, joyful, confident expectation. He said, I, I've done those three things. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the race. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me. Does it sound like there was any doubt? No. He said, it's laid up for me, and God's going to give it to me. And not to me only, but also to all them that loved his appearing. Did the Apostle Paul have a joyful, favorable expectation that God was going to do exactly what God said he was? Was there any doubt in his mind? No. That's the kind of hope Paul talks about. And he says, it's not only for me, but he says, for all who've loved his, that's you and me. We love the Lord and we want to see him coming. We can have an absolute, confident, joyful, no matter, no matter what prison, quote unquote, we find ourselves in, no matter what problem we find ourselves in, we can absolutely have this hope. And in fact, that's what Paul, back to our letter, wound up writing to the Romans. The book of Romans is a deafening, death-defying book of hope, which the world cannot dampen or defeat. The hope that we have in Christ is a hope, not only that the world has no idea about, but it is an absolute, guaranteed by the God who cannot lie, joyful, favorable, confident expectation. Let's take a look at the text where he uses it. Turn to me to Romans 4. Let's begin there. Please open your Bibles up and, and check me out again. I make mistakes, but God does not. So open your Bibles. Take a look at these passages. See the power in what God wrote, not in what Doug says. There's a world of difference. Let's look and examine that hope. Those dozen times he uses the word. 
under these circumstances. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. He's talked about in the beginning of chapter 4 how blessed those are who have their sins forgiven. What a wonderful thing it is to know that your sins have been washed away. Not to think they have, but to know they have based on the promise of God. And so then he goes to verse 13, Romans 4. He says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made voice, void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what Paul's letting them know is, look, it's not just to the Jews. It's, it's, this promise comes through faith, not through the law. The Jews had the law. He goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise, look, there's that, our word, promise, from God. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And what Paul's letting them know is, look, if you trust God, if you will take God at his word like Abraham did, and you will trust him, and you will, you will live and do what God said to do, because like Abraham, you trust him fully, then Abraham is your spiritual father. And this promise, I love that word in there, this promise, verse 16, is to all of those who have a faith like that. As it is written, verse 17, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham took God at his word, <coughs> trusted him completely, completely. God, this is why Bible study is so important. This is why with folks we need to sit down and have in-home Bible studies. This is why coming to Bible class is so crucially important. Because as we, as we see here, we need to come to know who God is through his word. Abraham trusted God and took him at his word. But that was contrary to hope, you would think. That's what he says. He says, verse 18, who, that is Abraham, who contrary to hope and hope believed. You know, what the, what the meaning there is, is contrary to the kind of hope that the world has. In biblical hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. God said, your descendants are going to be like the, you know, the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And Abraham took him at his word. Abraham didn't stop and look at his physical surroundings. He didn't stop and look at all the obstacles in the way of that happening. For example, verse 19, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was 100 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. 100-year-old guys don't have babies, okay? Just doesn't happen. And Abraham could look at that and said, huh, that ain't going to happen. But he didn't even think about that. That's what, that's what the Bible says. He did not consider his own, he didn't even think about it, already dead. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he didn't think about those things. God said, this is going to happen. Abraham left all that other stuff behind. He did not waver. Brethren, verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God. That's our key. That's where our hope comes from. We cannot waver at God's promise. If God says it's going to happen, if God says, I will bless you, if God says, if you repent and are baptized, you shall be saved, we need to have an absolute confident expectation of hope. That's the way it's going to be. It doesn't matter if we think, well, getting in a tank of water doesn't solve anything. Well, well this doesn't matter. That, that Don't waver in the promise of God through unbelief. But he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. 
He believed God, that glorified God. And being partly convinced, that's not what it says, and being, verse 21, fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do, that's the key. You want to hope that the world can't shake? You want to hope that no matter what Satan hits you with in this life, it cannot even begin to put a dent in it? You want to kind of hope that it's this confident, joyful expectation? Do what Abraham did. He did not waver the promise of God by looking around him and saying, that ain't possible. But being fully convinced that God was able to do exactly what God said he would do, therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice this applies to us, verse 23. It was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him I'm sorry, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also, if you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, highlight it for us. There it is. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Same thing applies to us. We need a confidence in God that will not let the world waver. If God said it, that settles it. And I believe it, not the other way around. Not God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not, but I do. The heart and soul of our heavenly hope is in verses 20 and 21, but he moves on. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 5. Therefore, Paul writes, and remember when this was written, there were no chapter uh, delineations. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what does that mean? That means we just take God at his word totally, and whatever God says that we need to do, we do it, we trust him. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and here it comes, and we rejoice in hope. A joyful, favorable, absolute, confident expectation that God will do exactly what he said he would do. He says, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but what he's going to go on to tell you in the next few verses is that'll carry you through anything. That kind of confident, I trust God, period, that, that hope and that expect, that'll carry you through anything. Look what he says. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. When we take God at his word, and we are absolutely assured in our own mind, no matter what our physical circumstances are, God's going to keep his word and we don't waver. That gives us joy in our tribulations, verse 3, because what happens is, when we have that joy in our tribulations, that causes us to go through them because we know God's going to do what God said. We know that God's going to see us through. We know that. So that gives us perseverance. Perseverance gives us character. And guess what? When we've come through on the other side and we've persevered and we have that character that trusts God even more than we did at the beginning, guess what we have? More hope, more joy, more of a confident expectation than we had going in. And hope does not disappoint, verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare die. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't just pull chapter 5 out away from the context of hope. Paul says the reason we can have this hope that sees us through tribulation and, and causes us to persevere joyfully even in the midst of our struggles, which creates a stronger faith and more hope, the reason we can do that is because God keeps his promise. And God, even when you and I were dead in our transgressions and sins, God loved us enough then, even when we were stained by sin that he can't stand, he still loved us enough to send Jesus Christ. Isn't he an awesome God? And that's what gives us our hope. God keeps his word no matter what. And just, and, and as we, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but as we, as we look back and we see how God has done that, that gives us even more hope. Confident expectation for what God's going to do. Let's look at another passage where he uses the word hope. Romans 8. Have I ever told you Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible? I only say that pretty much every time I turn there. Uh, I at least think it. Romans 8, look at this. Look at verses 23 through 25 where Paul uses the word hope again writing to the, the Church of Christ in first century Rome. Romans 8, 23 says not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. He says, we are just eagerly waiting for God to come and get us. We are, we are excited and, 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 and we're eager to have this happen. And we groan thinking, Lord, when's it going to be when you, when you take us to be with you and you change this sinful body? And he says in verse 24, for we were saved in this hope. In other words, that's the whole point of our salvation. That's the whole point. That's, that's the confident expectation that we have. We were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one hope for what he still sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's perseverance again, listen. If you absolutely, absolutely, no doubt in your mind, you are not wavering whatsoever, you know that God keeps his word to you and you are a child of God, you are a Christian, will that carry you through? Will it? Sure, perseverance. That'll carry you through, because you realize this life is temporary. Whatever we go through is just a mist, it's a vapor. But we know, based on God's word, we know he keeps his promise. And so we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's what hope does. Understanding it's a joyful, favorable, confident expectation. Look at Romans 12, 12. Let's see where he uses it again. Oh, Paul just, he has just, he has just absolutely overloaded the book of Romans with hope. But remember, these were people that had, you know, a lot of the Christians had been chased out and there was this persecution ongoing and things were a mess. Romans 12, look what he says. I love these first three words. There's a whole lot more here we could cover, but we'd be here till tonight. Rejoicing in hope. Can I still have within my heart a joy even in troubled times because I am fully confident in God's promise. Can I? Absolutely. That's the first three words, rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. 
I can be patient when I'm under fire because I have a full, confident expectation, and I'm happy with that from God. And it's not just a blind faith. It's not just, it's based on the Word of God, as we're going to see in a minute. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Yeah, tribulation will do that to you. But he goes on from there, but it's all about rejoicing in hope. Now, Paul goes on. He talks in chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15 and verse 3 about the weak and the strong when it comes to matters of opinion. I love Romans 14. Don't have time to spend a lot of time there. But it's about matters of opinion. It's about things that God has not legislated on. And he says, when you've got a matter of opinion, not about black and white, God said in 1 Peter 3.21 that baptism now saves you. That's not up for discussion. That's what God said, and we trust God fully. But when it comes to matters of opinion, like whether we should use a projector for our songs or songbooks, Romans 14 says, you know what? When it comes to your opinions, don't destroy your brother. We've all got our opinions on things God hasn't ruled on. Love one another and get along, even if your opinions are different. That's basically Romans 14. But as I said, in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 3, Paul talks about matters of opinion. Then he's going to do something incredible. He's getting ready to wrap up his epistle to the Romans, and he does something that's absolutely beautiful. If you've never watched the flow in the context here when it comes to hope, watch this. Beginning in Romans 15, verse 4, watch this unfold. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. As we read through the Bible, as we see how God treated Job, Job had more at the end than he did at the beginning. That's what the Bible tells us. Blessed with more. It's unimaginable that everything he lost, he could have more at the end, but he did. God took care of him. God took care of Jesus, God took care of Paul, God, God took care of them all. And, and as we read that, as we look back through the scriptures, Romans 15, 4, and we read about these things, it creates within us a patience and a comfort because we know that God is still in control and God still loves us and God's going to take care of us, however that may go. We trust him. That gives us, guess what? Hope, a certain conf confident, joyful expectation. Verse 5 of Romans 14. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says in verse 7, receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. Now, in verse 8 and 9, Paul's going to kind of transition from his discussion of the weak and strong and getting along to a discussion of the Jews and Gentiles, which makes sense. He goes from a discussion of the weak and the strong and how to deal with that to a discussion of the Jews and Gentiles, which is sort of the same thing because we're all acceptable in Christ now. We're all acceptable in Christ whether we're weak or strong, and we're similarly also acceptable to Christ whether Jew or Gentile. And so he transitions here. Look in verses 8 and following. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, here we go, to confirm the promises. Do you see God's promise here again? Jesus Christ has become a servant to the Gentile, uh, to, the, uh, to the Jews for the truth of God 
to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. In other words, Jesus was here for both the Jew, verse 8, and the Gentile, verse 9, but to do something very special. Don't miss what he was to do for them. He's confirming the promises. What does it mean when you confirm a promise? It means that you're showing that you're keeping your promise. That's what God did for us when he sent Jesus to die for us. All those promises from the Old Testament that he would send a Savior, God kept his promise. You know what that means? We can absolutely count on God to keep every other promise he's made too. And that gives us a confident, favorable, joyful, full, assured expectation that God will continue to do what God always does. And, and that's Paul's point to the Romans. Look, look what he goes on to say. He says, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now, just watch this unfold from the Old Testament. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Load him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse. He who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Shall hope. What I want you to see what Paul's unfolding, the argument here is this. Again, how many times in the Old Testament did God promise to bring a Messiah through how many different prophets? And guess what? He did it. That's why we have hope. That's why we have a confident expectation he'll always do what he said. In Romans 15, 9, and we just read this so you can follow along here, but just, just keep track of this. In Romans 15, 9, Paul quotes the promise given through David in Psalm 18 and verse 49. But he doesn't limit it to that. In the very next verse, in, in Romans 15.10, Paul quotes the promise given through Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. In the very next verse, in Romans 15.11, Paul quotes the prophecy given through the writer of Psalm 117. And finally, in verse 12, Paul quotes the prophecy of Isaiah 11. And he says, in him the Gentiles shall hope. The reason, one more time, that, that, that Paul goes through all of this to the Romans is not just about what David prom God promised through David. It's not just about what God promised through Moses. It's not just about what God promised through the psalmist. It's not just about what God promised through Isaiah. But all the way up through the Old Testament, God keeps making this promise, and God kept it, and that's why the Gentiles can have hope absolutely assured that what God is saying he will do, he will do. And, and Paul goes through all of that to lead to verse 13. Look, look at the, it's kind of like a sandwich here. You start in verse 4 and you, you kind of got, you know, the bread on one end and, and you get over to verse 13, you kind of got the bread on the other and you got the meat in the middle. All this meat, he did that for a reason. Paul didn't just stick verses 7 through 12 in there for no purpose because he needed to use more ink. There's a reason for its being there, and the reason is this. So that we would look back and say, I can absolutely be assured God will keep his word because he kept what he said through David and Moses and the psalmist and Isaiah. Therefore, I can have hope. At least to verse 13. Look how he wraps it up. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just that I hope it's going to happen. It is an absolute confident expectation because God keeps his promises. God is the God of hope, verse 13. And when this, this word here in Romans 15 and verse 13 where it says, may the God of hope fill you, that word fill, the original Greek word means to make full, to fill to the fullest, to cause to abound so that nothing shall be wanting, to fill or fulfill. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Did he keep everyone? Did he keep them right to overflowing? Did he keep everyone? Yeah, same word. That's what the word, may the God of hope fill you to overflowing. My cup overflows, David would write in the 23rd Psalm. My cup overflows. That's, that's the idea. And, and Paul says, may this God who keeps his promises, you can expect that he will continue to do so. May that fill you to overflowing with all joy so that you may abound in hope. Abound in it. You know what that means? Again, just this idea of, of overflowing. I have an absolute confident expectation this morning that my sins are forgiven. Amen, church? I'm telling you. Why? Because God told me, if I would repent, that is turn my heart to him, and I'd be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, that he'd forgive me. Is that right? Is that what the scripture says? Is that black and white? Acts 2? Sure is. And I don't think I'm going, I, I, I'm not going to heaven because I'm good. I'm not going to heaven because I decided to get wet. But I'll tell you this, as long as I walk in the light of his word, and I follow what he told me to do to the absolute best of my ability, and I humble my heart before him and do that, <coughs> this ain't arrogance. I'm going to heaven. That's not arrogance. That's confidence. That's hope. That is a confident expectation because that's what God said, and God always keeps his promises, and that's what the book of Romans is all about. It's an incredible thing. And I abound in hope this morning. Is everything in your life perfect? It ain't mine either. As Paul said to Cornelius, I'm just a man. Everything ain't perfect in my life either. We all have our struggles. But you know what? I'm still abounding in hope this morning because God is faithful and I'm not going to waver on his promise. You know why? Because I know he's not going to. That is the hope that we have. And folks, there is nothing whispering <laughs> or whimpering or quiet about it anywhere. It is a bold, confident, thunderous, all-consuming, earth-shaking, hell-shattering, soul-sheltering, fully assured, guaranteed, and absolute expectation that serves as my anchor this morning. Because I trust God. Because he's proven throughout his word that when he says something, he's going to keep his end of the deal. Now, I want you to consider one more text with me before we close. I have that one hope, and that one hope, hear me carefully, that one hope legitimately only belongs to those people who truly belong to the one Lord, Jesus Christ, that we see in Scripture, who truly follow the one faith, that we see in scripture, 
who have undergone that one baptism that we see in Scripture, to become members of that one body that we see in Scripture, as they honor and follow the one God and Father whom we see in Scripture. They are the only ones with that one hope, legitimately. Turn with me to our final passage and you'll see this. Ephesians chapter 4, they all go together. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Verifies everything I just said. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope, which we've already discussed, of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And some may look at that and say, no, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, Bible says there's one faith. And yet in our world today, there are thousands of faiths. God's not writing about the world. God's writing about what's acceptable to him. And as far as what he recognizes is one faith. Now, wait a minute, that can't possibly be true because after all, there's so many faiths and, well, let me ask you a question. How many gods are there? Anybody sitting in this room that would argue that there's a multiplicity of gods has an issue with the scriptures. We're, we're not a, a culture that believes in the God of thunder and the God of water and the God of rain and the God of springtime and the God of fertility and the God of this. There's one God, right? The very same word that precedes God in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, where it says there's one, meaning not two or more, also precedes those other six things. It says there's one faith. Uh, whatever the word one means in front of the word faith is the same thing it means in front of the word God. If there's one God, then as far as God's concerned, there's one faith. You say, well, you know, different people baptize for, for different reasons. You know, some people baptize babies and some people don't baptize at all and some baptize by sprinkling and some baptize and claim that you're baptized with fire and some, they go through all these different things and some baptize after they believe that they're saved in order to add them to, to their particular denomination and there's all these different, no, not according, according to God. Read the verse again. There is one baptism. There's one that God recognizes. Well, which one would it be? What well, would be the one in God's word? Because there's one spirit who had the word written down. So I want us to notice in that passage, again, there's one body, one spirit, just you called in that one hope. That one hope is heaven, as we've discussed. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And that one hope only belongs to those who have that package deal of the other six. You can't have one without the other. They're all only separated by a comma. They're in the same sentence. You need to have them all and you can't have any one of them. You can't have any few of them legitimately unless you're willing to get the whole thing. So this morning my question when it comes to hope is this. Do you want to claim for yours this morning? that certain joyful, confident, fully assured, will not waver expectation 
that biblical hope that God taught. Do you want to claim that this morning is yours? Well, how do we claim that one hope of Ephesians 4? By trusting that one God and Father in Ephesians 4? By making Jesus the one Lord of your life that we see in Ephesians 4? By becoming a member of that one body or church that belongs to Christ that we see in Ephesians 4? By undergoing that one baptism that we see in Ephesians 4, which would be the one for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. And by following that one faith that we see again in Ephesians 4, because you believe what that one Holy Spirit had written down for us to follow. If you do that, then you too can lay claim to that one thunderous, <clears throat> immense, earth-shaking, hell-shattering, soul-saving hope, which only fully belongs to those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you would like that hope this morning, it all begins when you repent. You're willing to turn to God, turn your life to God. You have faith, you've heard that he is Lord, and you're willing to repent and turn to him to confess him as Lord and to be baptized specifically for the forgiveness of your sins because that's what the one spirit said in the one word here. We'd love to have you do that this morning. Maybe your visitor with us this morning say, wait a minute. That doesn't really jive with other stuff I've heard. We'd love to sit down and just study God's word with you. There's a whole bunch of us here that have signed up. We'd love to sit down and Bible study with anybody that's got questions. And we're not going to give you our opinion, right, church? We're going to sit down and try to show you where there's answers to your Bible questions in the book, God's word, black and white, book, chapter, and verse. You've got a question, we'd love to answer them for you. Here it is. There's the reference. So if you're a visitor, I encourage you to do that. If somebody hasn't been baptized, I encourage you to do that for those reasons. Or if you're somebody here who's a member of the church, you've repented, you've been baptized, but you need the prayers of the church for strength, to better understand the hope you have. Brethren, don't walk out that door today with a hope so hope. Walk out that door today fully assured with an absolute, confident, joyful expectation that God is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do for you because he's God and that's what he's always done. That's the hope we have. I have that hope. I enjoy that hope. I need that hope. Do you need prayers to better realize that hope? If you have any of those needs this morning, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.